Anti-Federalist Papers, Section 28, Brutus Letter 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, May 2007, 10 January 1788. The next power is vested by this Constitution in the general government which we shall consider, are those which authorize them to, quote, borrow money on the credit of the United States, and to raise and support armies, end quote. I take these two together and connect them with the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, because their extent and the danger that will arise from the exercise of these powers cannot be fully understood unless they are viewed in relation to each other. The power to borrow money is general and unlimited, and the clause so often before referred to authorizes the passing any laws proper and necessary to carry this into execution. Under this authority, the Congress may mortgage any or all of the revenues of the Union as a fund to loan money upon, and it is probably in this way that they may borrow foreign nations a principal sum, the interest of which will be equal to the annual revenues of the country. By this means, they may create a national debt so large as to exceed the ability of the country ever to sink. I can scarcely contemplate a greater calamity than could befall this country than to be loaded with a debt exceeding their ability ever to discharge. If this be a just remark, it is unwise and improvident to vest in the general government a power to borrow at discretion without any limitation or restriction. It may possibly happen that the safety and welfare of the country may require that money be borrowed and it is proper when such a necessity arises that the power should be exercised by the general government. But it certainly ought never to be exercised but on the most urgent occasions, and then we should not borrow foreigners if we could possibly avoid it. The Constitution should therefore have so restricted the exercise of this power as to have rendered it very difficult for the government to practice it. The present Confederation requires the assent of nine states to exercise this, and a number of the other important powers of the Confederacy, and it would certainly have been a wise provision in this Constitution to have made it necessary that two-thirds of the members should assent to borrowing money, when the necessity was indispensable. This assent would always be given, and in no other cause ought it be. The power to raise armies is indefinite unlimited, and authorizes the raising forces as well in peace as in war. Whether the clause which empowers the Congress to pass all laws which are proper and necessary to carry this into execution will not authorize them to impress men for the army is a question well worthy of consideration. If the general legislature deem it for the general welfare to raise a body of troops, and they cannot be procured by voluntary enlistments, it seems evident that it will be proper and necessary to effect it, that men be impressed from the militia to make up the deficiency. These powers, taken in connection, amount to this that the general government have unlimited authority and control over all the wealth and all the force of the Union. The advocates for this scheme would favor the world with a new discovery if they would show what kind of freedom or independency is left to the state governments when they cannot command any part of the property or of the force of the country, but at the will of Congress. It seems to me as absurd as it would be say that I was free and independent when I had conveyed all my property to another and was tenant to will to him, and had beside given an indenture of myself to serve him during my life. The power to keep up standing armies in time of peace has been justly objected to this system as dangerous and improvident. The advocates who have wrote in its favor have some of them ridiculed the objection, as though it originated in the distempered brain of its opponents, and others have taken pains to show that it is a power that was property to be granted to the rulers in this Constitution. 
that you may be enabled to form a just opinion on this subject, I shall first make some remarks tending to prove that this power ought to be restricted, and then animadvert on the arguments which have been adduced to justify it. I take it for granted, as an axiom in politic, that the people should never authorize their rulers to do anything which, if done, would operate to their injury. It seems equally clear that in the case where a power, if given an exercise, will generally produce evil to the community and seldom good, and which experience has proved has most frequently been exercised to the great injury, and very often to the total destruction of the government, in such a case, I say, this power, if given at all, should be, if possible, so restricted as to prevent the ill effect of its operation. Let us then inquire whether standing armies in time of peace would be ever beneficial to our country, or, if in some extraordinary cases they might be necessary, whether it is not true that they have generally provided a scourge to a country, and destructive of their liberty. I shall not take up much of your time in proving a point, in which the friends of liberty in all countries have so universally agreed. The following extract from Mr. Putney's speech delivered in the House of Commons of Great Britain on a motion for reducing the army is so full to the point, and so much better than anything I can say, that I shall be excused for inserting it. He says, quote, I have always been and always shall be against the standing army of any kind. To me it is a terrible thing, whether under that of a parliamentary or any other designation. A standing army is still a standing army, but whatever name it is called. They are a body of men distinct from the body of the people. They are governed by different laws and blind obedience, and an entire submission to the orders of their commanding officer is their only principles. The nations around us, sir, are already enslaved by those very means. By means of their standing armies they have every one lost their liberties. It is indeed impossible that the liberties of the people in any country can be preserved where a numerous standing army is kept up. Shall we then take our measures from the example of our neighbor? No, sir, on the contrary, from their misfortunes ought we to learn to avoid those rocks upon which they have split. It signifies nothing to tell me that our army is commanded by such gentlemen as cannot be supposed to join in any measures for enslaving their country. It may be so. I have a very good opinion of many gentlemen now in the army. I believe they would not join in any such measures, but their lives are uncertain, nor can we be sure how long they will be kept in command. They may all be dismissed in a moment, and proper tools of power put in their room. Besides, sir, we know the passions of men. We know how dangerous it is to trust the best of men with too much power. Where was a braver army than that under Julius Caesar? Where was there ever an army that had served their country more faithfully? That army was commanded generally by the best citizens of Rome, by men of great fortune and figure in their country, yet that army enslaved their country. The affections of the soldiers toward their country, the honor and integrity of their under-officers are not to be depended upon. By the military law the administration of justice is so quick and the punishment so severe that neither the officer nor soldier dare dispute the orders of his supreme commander. He must not consult his own inclination. If an officer were commanded to pull his own father out of this house, he must do it. He dares not disobey. Immediate death would be the sure consequence of the least grumbling. And if an officer were sent into the court of request accompanied by a body of musketeers with screwed bayonets and with orders to tell us what we ought to do and how we were to vote, I know what would be the duty of this house. I know it would be our duty to order the officer to be hanged at the door of the lobby. But I doubt, sir, I doubt much if such a spirit could be found in the house or in any house of commons that will ever be in England. 
Sir, I talk not of imaginary things. I talk of what has happened to an English House of Commons, from an English army, not only from an English army, but an army that was raised by that very House of Commons, an army that was paid by them, and an army that was commanded by generals appointed by them. Therefore do not let us vainly imagine that an army, raised and maintained by authority of Parliament, will always be so submissive to them. If an army be so numerous as to have it in their power to overawe the Parliament, they will be submissive as long as the Parliament does nothing to disoblige their favorite general. But when that case happens, I am afraid that in place of the Parliament's dismissing the army, the army will dismiss the Parliament. End quote. If this great man's reasoning be just, it follows that keeping up a standing army would be in the highest degree dangerous to the liberty and happiness of the community. And if so, the general government ought not to have authority to do it, for no government should be empowered to do that which, if done, would tend to destroy public liberty. Brutus End Anti-Federalist Papers, Section 28